Welcome. This is Thinking Transportation, stories about how we get ourselves and the things we need from point A to point B and all that can happen in between. I'm Bernie Fetty with the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. We're visiting today with the leaders of the two most prominent transportation research institutes in America, where novel and assertive thinking is helping to meet mobility challenges and enhance our daily lives. Greg Winfrey has been the agency director at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute for about five years. Zach Dorzoff has been leading the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute for just over a month. Gentlemen, thank you both for sharing your time with us today. You're welcome, Mr. Fetty. It's a great pleasure to be here with you and great pleasure to be here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Zach Dorzaff. Likewise, I'm thrilled to be joining the two of you on your show. So happy great. to share some of our knowledge lessons and exciting stories about the future of transportation. Yeah. We're happy to have both of you. So TTI and the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute are the two biggest agencies of their kind in the United States. More than $100 million in funded research each year between the two. Technically, we're competitors, but we certainly do share a common interest fundamentally. How do each of you see the nation's mobility priorities, and how do you see your university-based research supporting those priorities? You know, it's good. There's always the big three that, you know, we've all focused on for some time. And first and foremost is the safety challenges that lay before us. When we're looking at the big mobility priorities, that's always number one for me. It is not appropriate to continue killing people at the rate they die on our nation's highways. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the early data from this past year is looking like we're trending in the wrong direction with early estimates coming in, potentially over 38,000 lives lost just here in the United States. You know, similarly, we have our mobility challenges. You know, too many Americans spend far too much time in traffic these days. It's time to get us moving people and goods swiftly, equitably, providing access where it is deficient. All of those sorts of challenges, which in many cases appear to be trending in the wrong direction as well. And then, of course, looking at what is happening in the, with things like climate change, we need to be very mindful of transportation's impact on the earth and the other environmental impacts as well so that we can find ways to curtail that impact and to start turning those trends around as well. You know, so if I think about what is going on in the mobility priorities in, in my head and what an institute like ours can really do to make a difference is, is first recognizing that, that we're in this incredible age of smart mobility, and it, it really is now. We have these disruptive technologies emerging regularly, providing a variety of new ways to look at these old problems, not only to look at them, but then to really create new solutions to address them in ways that we've never had the ability to do before. But that also means we really have more work laying in front of us than behind us because a lot of these methods are new. So we have to find ways to apply them appropriately and not fall down into a pit of unintended consequences for applying them in a way that we didn't anticipate the outcomes and, and really maximizing the benefits and minimizing those unintended consequences. That sounds like a really full plate. How do you see those priorities, Greg? Well, you know, the first thing I would say, of course, is uh, I agree 100% with everything Zach 
set forth. The other observation would be, uh, you know, even though we reside in universities in different parts of the country, the competitiveness ends on the football field. So from a scientific community uh, perspective, we're aligned on many of the objectives to help move the nation forward. But the other thing, you know, there are just some sayings we used to have when I was at USDOT. One of those was the first 50 years of automotive technology was spent in helping occupants survive crashes. The next 50 years are about avoiding crashes altogether. I mean, we still have ridiculously high number of roadway fatalities that receives very little fanfare or attention from the public and the media. So 38,000 individuals lost, but more importantly, 38,000 families that have lost a loved one, a breadwinner, a contributor to our economy. The detractors of the grieving process on that family, a loss to our economy of productivity, of injury, and, and other expenses affiliated with that, whether they're hospital expenses or rehab. So it's a tremendous drain for our economy just to look at it from solely a numbers perspective. But there are the human and the interpersonal effects as well. And then the other observation I would add, you know, we really can't build our way out of the challenges uh, that we face. Uh, Our roadway, our, our interstate system is, even though it's no longer completely optimal for the level of traffic we have, it's still amongst the finest in the world. So what I think uh, we can add as researchers, better ways to utilize what we have, because again, we can't build our way out of it. We need to figure out how to better utilize what we have. Uh, There are 24 hours in the day, so that gives us a platform in which to think creatively about how to better, better spread out that demand over time and reduce the instance of roadway crashes, uh, you know, when everybody's on the road at the same time, that's what contributes to those numbers. So, I mean, there are things we can be doing. Some certainly at the front end are common sense. Others require scientific rigor and rectitude, and that's certainly what Virginia Tech and TTI bring to the table. I want to share something with you that we learned from talking to some people who are much newer to this line of work than the two of you are. Not too long ago, we worked on a video to help the Transportation Research Board observe its 100th anniversary. And we interviewed a lot of students, a lot of young people about the future of transportation. And we asked them a number of questions. One of the things that we asked them was what the the transportation of tomorrow would look like. And no kidding, several of them actually said teleportation. In the research universe, we like to talk a lot about innovation, which I guess teleportation would fall into that category. What does the notion of innovation mean to each of you? Well, you know, that's an interesting observation, Ernie, and is certainly someone who grew up watching Star Wars and Star Trek, I can understand that perspective. If you spin the clock back, probably not that many years ago, that very well could have been my answer, Um, tempered somewhat by the realities of having watched the movie The Fly, 
and what happened uh, when <laughs> right. I got into the teleportation chamber. Right. But so when you look at what innovation is thinking about at large, I would say sci-fi, science fiction provides a lot of ideations that ultimately get when technology catches up and the realities of technology catch up actually become truisms. And it's funny, I was sitting with my assistant in my office and the phone rang and she answered the phone on her iWatch. Now, I grew up also with Dick Tracy as a Sunday newspaper cartoon and and Dick Tracy talked to a watch. Now, in the late 60s, early 70s, early 80s, nothing seemed more impossible than that. That seemed completely beyond the realm of technology, certainly the technology we had at the time. So ideas that are the province of sci-fi can infuse the innovation process to make them reality. So I would certainly add that observation. But innovation, and certainly in the world in which Zach and I operate, very well could be recasting ideas or products that are currently out there for a new purpose, right? So innovation can be rethinking how you use something that currently exists as much as it could be of thinking of something from whole cloth, either from basic or exploratory research and creating a brand new widget. So so it's a very broad category and I would you know target those three areas as spurring uh, human thinking and human endeavor to match ideas that have been generated once technology makes them realizable. Yeah, that was great, Greg. I mean, I think innovation is a really fascinating term and it, you know, I'd say it is often misused as well. You know, one of the things that's good to keep in mind is the innovation is an outcome of sort of a new, you know, something new that has emerged and is adopted and fundamentally changes the pre-existing state of whatever we were doing before the innovation. So, mm-hmm. You know, it's very close to us. And in fact, every day when I walk into the front doors of the building, I walk under a tagline that we have posted, which is advancing transportation through innovation. Mm-hmm. And we very much have things that we have accomplished over our 25 years that are certainly fall into the category of, of being considered an innovation. The naturalistic driving method is a great example of one of those. It's a, a method which may seem fairly commonplace today of embedding data acquisition systems into to vehicles and letting those cars with their drivers do whatever they would normally do and observing what it is that leads to things like crashes and near crashes or other types of transportation challenges. And that early work we did in the late mid to late 90s ultimately has led to a new method for collecting data and understanding the transportation problems. It is widely adopted across the world. So it's sort of we're very proud of those kind of innovations. It is trickier to think about where that innovation will lie in the future. And I think your example using the teleportation is spot on because it's really difficult perhaps fundamentally impossible to know when an innovation is occurring until it has occurred. Mm-hmm. That said, we can start to look at that lens of where the innovations will be through these disruptions, disruptive technologies, we often like to call it, that seem to be emerging you know, around us every day. And nobody really thought something like Uber or Lyft 
would so fundamentally change the way that so many people move around in such short order. And there was no amazing fundamental technology at that particular moment in time. There were a number of enablers and some group of smart people came to a realization at the right time to stand up a new way of helping to move people around. A really neat part of being in the university system is that we're not sort of bound to to shareholders or to a future product or to other forces, and rather we can look at these problems with a more altruistic mindset and understand how they can do the greatest public good and, and focus our attention on on ensuring that we maximize those potential benefits as the technologies do become innovation. Yeah. Bernie, I was just going to touch back on a point Zach made real quickly because I think sure. that Uber Lyft point that he raised is is really key. And I've got a real world example why I wanted to get back to it. So I joined USDOT in March of 2010. It's at the corner of New Jersey Avenue and M Street in Southeast DC. And whenever we would travel around the region, um, you know, uh, within the city to other agencies or to the Pentagon or whatever, we would go out onto the corner and literally at every stoplight, there would be five to seven taxis. Many of them were in transit. There were always two to three that had the little yellow light lit that meant, hey, I'm ready and available to pick up fares. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you fast forward to literally two weeks ago where I stayed at a hotel a block away and needed to get across town and stood on a corner a block away. And I was there for 15 minutes and not a single taxi came by. So the fundamental change that Zach mentioned from this innovation of Uber and Lyft, sometimes you don't realize how impactful or how fundamental the change that they can instill is until you look backward over time. So I was just struck by the fact that, you know, 10 years ago when I was standing on that same region, I could hail a taxi just about at will and 10 years later, you know, if you didn't call an Uber or a Lyft, you had an interminably long wait of an undetermined time. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes innovation sneaks up on you and you don't realize how impactful it's been until you look back over time. Until you've had a point of reference, it sounds like. Right. That's right. Yeah, some historical reference. And I think, Zach, what you said was you don't know that it's an innovation until after it happens, right? That's right. Yeah, you can. You certainly can gather a sense that it could be. What we can do is invent, right? And and that's certainly what we do a lot. We invent sometimes brand new ideas. Sometimes inventions do fall more in the category of improving. And but those through research and invention, what we're really doing is helping to create and stimulate and really accelerate the innovations because you can't make real significant lasting change until it is an innovation. A real strength of, I think, both Greg and I's shops is that we both represent land-grant universities, which is a pretty amazing thing. And and for those who don't know, there's three pillars of land-grant mission. And each one of those, we apply to all of the work that we do. You know, first is learning. And so as we think about the education process being associated with universities, that's all about helping to bring up the next generation so that they can continue the good work that we're starting. So having that first peer of learning is a real strength of universities and something that we at the institutes both really kind of elevate in our role to help create um, students who have firsthand experiences and can 
enter the workforce really understanding how to make positive impacts through advanced research and development on the transportation system, which leads you to the second sort of three legs on a stool, which is research. Um, And of course, both of us, I believe, have an extremely large focus on research, and that is bringing to fruition all of the new tools, techniques, methods, approaches that we've been talking about to really improve the transportation system and doing that through objective scientific approaches so that we can be confident in the outcomes of those changes that occur as they emerge. But the third is equally as important, and that is ensuring that the good work that occurs within our facilities doesn't stay there. You know, I like to think of it as engagement in the broader sense of working really in incredible collaborations, whether that's TTI and VTTI working together, but also with our partners in the automotive industry, whether that be manufacturers and suppliers, but also reaching into our public partnerships as well through um, the federal government, National Traffic Safety Administration, and Federal Highway, and other organizations charged with the performance of transportation at the national level, as well as our, our operators here in our states, whether that's at the state level or down to the locality level, who can all take the good work that we perform and implement it. The whole concept of applied research, right? Making sure that it actually gets put into use. Absolutely. And, and here at VTTI, we certainly do basic research. Our bread and butter where we really like to exist is in the application space where we can see the effects of the work that we do in the near term. And I think it's fair to say, Greg, that we certainly have that same uh, sensibility here, trying to make sure that the research doesn't just sit on a shelf, that the operating agencies that fund our research actually gain the benefit of better practices from the work that we do, right? Absolutely. You know, I I like to call it real world solutions for real world problems. Yes, sir. So, you know, that's what we bring to the table. I'm a big fan of exploratory and basic and creating things from whole cloth. But uh, a lot of the satisfaction that our professionals get, and it's not just in the, the transportation sciences. I mean, we have a world-class team that works on communications across the system, whether they be video and television productions uh, or you know the, our policy group. So we can be impactful and really get our message across with respect to providing uh, implementable idea solutions and technologies, whether it's in the hard science side or all the way through with many of the other things that we offer uh, at the Institute. We've already had a couple of references to the teaching side of this and the young people that you both get to, to work with occasionally. In addition to your research responsibilities, you're both in academic roles too, if I understand right. So you have a lot of contact with that future workforce for this industry. What are the challenges that they're facing that maybe you didn't have to face? And conversely, what advantages do you think they have that perhaps you didn't enjoy? You know, I'll go back to the importance of the educational component in terms of ensuring that we're working on on the problems over the long term. And I have the, as you alluded to, the privilege of serving in a joint appointment role where I'm also in the biomedical engineering and mechanics department. And that allows me to teach directly. So I still spend time in the classroom. Department has been good enough to provide me with a latitude to focus on advanced vehicle systems research and development as a topic for my primary course load. So these students are entering the workforce with a great understanding of how to actualize research into implementation. And and I do that 
by really creating a lot of hands-on opportunities so that really experiential learning in the classroom. And then we take that out of the classroom at VTTI by ensuring that we have roles like graduate research and assistantships and internships, and we fund and support senior design projects and, and help to support competitions. And really all of that is to create these amazing experiences, which to get to your question is part of what I think has become critically important because a lot of the education system has become hyper-focused in some ways on the classroom component. And we're really good, frankly, at teaching in the classroom, teaching to the books, and creating very smart students. What I think we inadvertently leave behind at times is ensuring those students understand how that knowledge is actually applied in the real world. And I think that is something we really bring to their experience. So how is that difference from when I was there? And I think part of it is that I did have a lot of experiences when I was a student, and those really made me part of who I am. But I also would say that the pace of technology development and all of the options one has to seek knowledge these days feels as though it's expanded significantly. It's like the the pace is moving so quick that by the time we teach on a subject, it's often becoming outdated. And I feel yeah. like students are challenged by keeping up with that. And and one of our jobs as researchers who try to stay on that cutting edge is to be sure that we're teaching on the cutting edge as well. Yeah, you know, and, and Bernie, Zach and I kind of had different pathways to these roles. Uh, I came into transportation from my prior career as a practicing lawyer. So I joined as chief counsel of the research division at the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation and then ultimately made my way on up to assistant secretary. The reason I tell you that is during that tenure, when the administration was close to winding up, I was invited to visit with Texas A&M to start to talk about what would a role look like for a lawyer that had transportation experience to be a liaison between the, at the time, new law school, the Texas A&M School of Law in Fort Worth was fairly recently acquired shortly before those visitations back at the 2015 timeframe. So what did it look like to have somebody that had a foot in both camps with the TTI side as well as with the legal side and the Bush School of Public Policy to kind of try and tie those together. So my role, even though I have an academic appointment to the law school, it's less from a traditional teaching perspective and more from an, we've got an old guy walking around here with a gray beard that's had experiences outside of the state of Texas that may be impactful and instructive for students looking at outlets as they enter the profession. So, you know, I started out at a private law firm in Washington. I went to the Department of Justice as a career trial attorney. I then had three engagements in Fortune 500 corporations, then as a political appointee in the Obama administration and now, of course, at TTI. So looking at that span and, and growth over time, they thought that my experiences would be helpful in providing a broader perspective for law students as they started to consider 
where they wanted to invest their time career-wise. So that's kind of what I've been engaged to do. So we haven't started teaching courses yet, but I would say that would be the first outlet where I would have that one-on-one interaction with students. Right now, it's kind of uh, catch as catch can, you know, when I'm in and around Fort Worth. But I will say the students that I've engaged with have found it tremendously rewarding to have someone to bounce those kind of ideas off of and to talk about clerkships, whether they be in D.C. in the halls of Congress or in Austin in the halls of the state legislature or judicial clerkships, opportunities with corporations. So there's a lot that I can help them, again, scope out career planning. And that's what I really find rewarding about this opportunity at Texas A&M. What you're both describing certainly does illustrate, among other things, how the whole concept of education in this field has really evolved over not that many years, just the last decade or two. Well, that, that's certainly the case. And, and certainly in the case of lawyers, you know, I can tell you that there isn't an ideation of career opportunities in transportation. Many of the lawyers who find themselves there came up through the Office of General Counsel ranks, and that's to be expected. But there are many areas where legal training could be applied across the industry, right? So so helping them think more broadly has been key. And that's something that I didn't have, you know, if I'm honest. I, I found myself, again, in a in a lawyerly role, but having the opportunity to progress as folks moved around in that governmental opportunity is what really made me a, a prime candidate for the TTI role. So, Yes, those are some of the things I didn't have early on, and that's what I'm hoping to provide to the next generation of law students, but also undergrads that are aspiring to move in this direction. That's great. Yeah, I thought you raised something very interesting there, Bernie, which is um, to reflect on the extent to which basic degree path and the expertise that one follows has changed drastically over my 20-ish years in the profession, which it's pretty staggering, to be honest. You know, yeah. mechanical engineers dominated the design of a vehicle, as an example. You know, you certainly had a lot of other people in the mix as well. Fast forward to today, car- cars are moving computers, right? You've got huge right. numbers of software engineers and other expertise that have emerged and, and even specialties in automotive engineering and other professions, which are really keenly focused on developing incredibly complex vehicles and infrastructure that we have today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just a few days ago, the last, and this was actually a slightly used car that I bought, and the salesperson said, this is this is a computer on wheels. It yeah. absolutely is. I mean, if you're, it, it gets back to the pace of technology a bit, but if we look at, you know, an old vehicle, you're looking at zero lines of code, right? <laughs> All the way yeah. up into the <laughs> 80s time frame, And then, you know, in the 90s, we start having things like fuel injection and, and computers sort of start sneaking their way into a small system here and there. And, you know, if you fast forward to the modern electrical vehicle architectures, you're starting to look at million lines of code level. And most estimates talking about highly automated vehicles are in the billion line of code. That's a staggering difference to the point yeah. where you, you realize you can't even realistically put human eyes on all of that, right? So you're you're relying on really advanced methods and, and machines even teaching themselves or teaching other machines in order to create the level of intelligence needed. That's that's staggeringly different. Yeah, and, and I, I really enjoy the, the way my boss and your friend Greg like to describe the environment we're all going to face in not too many years 
with all of those cars with the billions of lines of code commingling with the 57 Chevys and the 69 Mustangs and I think what Greg likes to refer to as a mosh pit of, <laughs> of, of, of transportation. You both could have pursued several different lines of work. I mean, even though you had some variety until you got to your current positions. I'm curious about why you chose this path. If I can be so bold as to say in 25 words or less, what revs you up to come to work every day? Well, I was one of those, and my parents would say weird kids that had always had affinity for science and technology. I had a subscription to popular science when I was eight and read it cover to cover. So I had always been attracted to that kind of thinking and those that operated in that arena. So if you look throughout my career, certainly with the corporate opportunities, I'd always been drawn to uh, either medicine or heavy engineering uh, that continues, of course, into the transportation industry. But to me, that was my highest and best use because I kind of developed a niche as a lawyer that had the ability to break down complex scientific concepts for laypersons or even worse, judges. So that's still a role that I, I would say I thrive in and I find it tremendously rewarding to be uh, engaged in that fashion. Well, I wasn't counting there. That can be 25. That, that couldn't have been 25. <laughs> That's the best you get from a lawyer. Sorry. Yeah, that's actually, you're right. So I'm a lot like Greg in terms of just a, an innate curiosity about the world, which led me to the understanding that I wanted to be in the engineering realm from a very early age, um, or certainly in the technical career path. But, you know, perhaps more importantly than that is I've, I'm a gearhead slash car enthusiast and practically came out of the womb that way, best I can tell. You know, it's certainly, yeah. <laughs> There's no better toy than a Hot Wheels as a kid. And I, one of my favorite games that I used to play, uh, you know, with my dad a lot while we were driving around was name that car. And it was who could figure out not just what make and model that car was, but you had to get year of the vehicle before the other person. So, you know, it's uh, that's probably not the average thing that the kid today with an iPad in the backseat yeah. is thinking while they're cruising down the road. I, I played that game, and, and I remember playing it at night because it was then you had to identify the car by the taillight. That was the master's edition. <laughs> I actually bought my first car when I was 14 years old, which wow. was a, uh, yeah, a year and a half before I was eligible to get behind the wheel of any car, much less one that I owned. Um, so that was that was fun. It was a classic car. I spent two years taking it down literally every night and bolt all the way to piles on the garage floor and and rebuilt every component on that car from the ground up, including all new engine work and paint and the whole ball of wax. So that was a really great opportunity to understand the inner workings of a, a vehicle and how that applies to the way that those cars operate. And what emerged as I was in my undergraduate degree was the realization that I also really enjoyed science itself and being able to yeah. carefully look at a problem, understand exactly what is happening in a way that you could objectively explain it and repeat. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And that, you know, stemmed my interest in in sticking around for postgraduate degrees and really transportation just continued to be to be a big factor in that. And so it 
it's a little funny, but ultimately, you know, Virginia Tech really attracted me. And back then, VTTI in its infancy was this amazing find, you know, stumbled across it on an early website and thought, wow, I had no idea these things existed. And so I, I literally got sucked into the career uh, and never left. One thing I understand that you guys share in common is your interest in motorcycles. Do you think that that interest has shaped your approach to your work in any way? You know, I would say absolutely. And it was one of the passions I carried forward uh, into my role at USDOT. It was my observation that law policy regulations were often drafted. And after they were issued, then came the collective forehead slap. Oh, gee, we forgot about motorcycles. So even in the conversations now that include vulnerable road users, you hear routinely pedestrians, bicyclists, you'll even hear e-scooters and every other uh, means of personal mobility, but motorcycles are still left out inexplicably, uh, to be quite honest. If you look worldwide, motorcycles are probably one of the predominant means of inexpensive transport for many peoples around the world. They remain so in this country. I think it's been unfortunate that it's been branded as somewhat of a rebel activity. Hollywood hasn't helped in that regard. But, you know, there was an old commercial that said, you know, you meet the nicest people on a motorcycle. It didn't quite say that. It was talking about Hondas. But that's true. And it remains a low-impact transport option that would reduce congestion writ large, would reduce the need for limited space in cities for parking, et cetera. They are relatively clean operating, at least compared to larger vehicles. So for all of those reasons, they should be a viable option at the center of the conversation, particularly as we talk about mobility going forward as we sit here today. So Yes, that's informed a lot of how I think about transportation and the safety aspects, making sure that motorcyclists are always at the forefront of thinking from a vulnerable road user perspective. Well, and you not only meet some nice people on motorcycles, but at least in your case, Greg, I know that people would have an opportunity to meet a nice dog on a motorcycle. <laughs> because I know that Maya hangs out with you whenever you're on your bike from time she to time. She does. She is the yeah. rolling chihuahua. Chihuahua in a pouch on a motorcycle. That's amazing. I'd, I've never tried to ride with a dog. I thought passengers were hard enough. That sounds like a next level, Greg. I'm, man, I'm not, I'm not sure I could keep up with this guy anymore. Yeah, it definitely shapes my thinking. For example, in 2019, I believe motorcyclists were 20 times more likely to be involved in a fatal accident than their, mm-hmm. their counterparts in the vehicles. And to Greg's point, there seems to be a, you know, a perception at times that they're rebels and they must have a death wish. But I think it's really important to realize that motorcyclists are no different fundamentally. They want to get to their destination just as safe and smoothly as everybody behind a car does. And the problems really aren't all that much different. You still have speed. You still have alcohol involvement. So we can apply the same treatments to both systems. And I think sometimes sometimes we neglect to characterize them and to think about them up front in the same way that Greg described. And that's really doing that population a disservice. I believe it's really important as we look forward to understand that some of the new systems that are emerging can really make a positive impact on this space. Because to Greg's point, 
they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere because they are a great mode of transportation, but they also are more than just transportation. This is people own motorcycles because of the experience of riding a bike is different and they enjoy it in a different way. And it's can be compared to the, to jump back to the classic muscle car. You know, I'm not going to pry the, the 1967 GTO out of somebody's hands because I think I can put them in a newer car that would be safer. That's not a practical solution to the problem. Motorcycles are the same way and you can extend it to all these other, you know, electric skateboards. And there are many ways to transport. We really need to be considering the whole system and how we can address each of those users within. And I sort of always say, you know, transportation begins and ends with the human. And we have to think about all of the ways that the human is involved in that, regardless of what it is they happen to be using to carry themselves from point A to point B. Gives us a lot of reason for optimism. Yes, sir. Greg Winfrey and Zach Dorzoff, leaders of TTI and VTTI. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been very informative and it's been fun too. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, Bernie, my pleasure. Appreciate yeah. it. Happy to come back anytime. Good. Zach, a pleasure hanging out with you again, my friend. Likewise, Greg, maybe in person <laughs> before too long, huh? Let's do it for sure. For a nation and society to be prosperous and secure, safe and reliable mobility is a fundamental requirement. To ensure that future, we will need living transportation laboratories where curiosity is commonplace and adventurous problem-solving can lead to genuine innovation. All in a day's work at both the Texas A&M Transportation Institute and the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time for a conversation with Yolanda Prazzi and Juan Villa about how the pandemic has made us all learn a bit more about how supply chains work and what can happen when they don't. Thinking Transportation is a production of the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, a member of the Texas A&M University System. The show is edited and produced by Chris Porto. I'm your writer and host, Bernie Fetty. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. 